Uh, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And so I'm, I'm going to give you guys a chance to turn there uh, while I do what we call acknowledgments or black folks call shout outs. Uh, so I'm going to shout it out to my fam who's in the building uh, today, my pop, my mom, my sister. Um, and then I just want to say thank you to the elders for giving me this ridiculous opportunity to proclaim the risen Savior on this Sunday morning. Uh, there's only a few amount of pastors around the world every Sunday who gather to do this same thing, and so I'm just happy to be part of that number. Uh, but last but not least at all, I just want to praise God for the baddest thing on two legs. Uh, my beautiful wife uh, of five years now. Yeah, y'all can clap it up for her. Um, you know, I, 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 one of the ways on which I'm gifted is I'm definitely like more of like an evangelist. I like to share the gospel a lot, and that can be very discouraging when people don't come to Christ regularly. And so one thing that I know that I know that I know that God is in the business of saving souls, I get to turn to my right every single night and see somebody that I led to Christ in my bed every single night. Ain't no other feeling like it. And so I just want to praise God for her and just the encouragement she is to my soul on an everyday basis. And so we can stand for the reading of the word uh, as we do here. <clears throat> like Pastor E do, I'm going to start and then y'all continue. Starting at verse 1, 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Let's read it. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Keep going. Amen. So we're going to tag this message, the victorious identity of the Christian, the victorious identity of the Christian. Let's go ahead and go before the Father. Uh, thank you, Father, uh, that you have claimed us victorious by the victory in your son, Christ Jesus, uh, by no other means. Uh, on earth or in heaven or in the universe, do we have such a claim? But because of your grace, you sent your only begotten into the world, into a sinful, lustful, nasty world that we might be redeemed. And not only have we received mercy upon mercy, but we have been claimed victorious in you. And so I just pray that in this season of possessions and much wealth that we would not lose the fact that our victory is not just promised for when Christ returns, but that we have victory in Christ Jesus right now here on this earth. I pray that you would challenge us, convict us. I pray that you would save some, sanctify many, and that your name would be celebrated by all. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seats. Well, about a few years ago, as Pastor Larry kind of uh, talked about a little bit, I got the opportunity to do something I had never done before, which is get myself my passport. 
Now, it was a privilege and it was a pain because it was a privilege because we got a chance to go to Malawi, Africa. I'd never been outside of the borders of the United States, but it was a pain because if anybody has ever gotten a passport, you know the difficulty that comes with getting a passport. Now, I had to raise like $2,200 for a plane ticket, and that didn't even come close to the difficulty that I had in getting this little booklet called a passport. And so I began to think about why is it so difficult to get a passport, this small booklet that seems so meaningless. And so I started to think about it. I realized that not only is a passport giving you access to a privilege that you already intrinsically have as a citizen of the United States, It doesn't give you a new privilege. You already have access, the freedom to fly if you're a U.S. citizen. What it does is give you access to this privilege that you already have by identifying you as the person who you claim to be. Now track with me real quick. So the way the passport is set up is that it's actually backed by three other proof IDs that you must attain first before you can get your passport. Let me tell you what I mean. In order to get my passport, I had to first get a driver's license. And in order to get my driver's license, I had to first produce a social security card. And in order to get a social security card, I had to first produce a birth certificate. And so you have this backing of IDs, making sure that you actually are exactly who you claim to be. Here in this this book, in this epistle, John wants to lay out what the Christian actually looks like. Because at the time, there were a lot of people who were playing identity theft with the name Christian. And there was a lot of people who were saying that they were Christians, they claimed to be Christians, maybe to get penalty of sin removed from them, but not sin itself. They still wanted to dance around in the, and mingle around in the sin that they continued in, but they didn't want the penalty at the end of their lives. Yeah. And so they, they will play identity theft in this way. What John wants to lay out in these verses are the proof IDs, if you will, of the Christian faith. And so he starts off with the birth certificate of faith. When, when you trust in Jesus Christ, you are now born into the household of God, as Paul says. And so then he goes on to the social security card of love. You know, your social security, the only thing that you have as your identity in the U.S. is your social security card. The Christian that loses love loses his identity. The Christian who does not have love does not have an identity at Christian as all. So then we move on and then he has the driver's license, if you will, of obedience. And what I love about licenses is they not only identify you, but they also give you the ability to do something. Right. And so what obedience does is for the Christian, it says it not only identifies who you are, but it says that I'm going to do something with this. Right. So so here we're going to lay out in these first five verses and I'm, I'm just going to pack these first five verses into you. And then by God's grace, we can encourage one another that those who actually have these proof identities of faith, love and obedience might know that not only is victory waiting for them, but they are walking in their victory now. All right. So looking at verse one, it says this. It says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So the first thing we need to ask ourselves is, are you identified by an unwavering faith? Are you identified by an unwavering faith? See, the the way we would like to read this in our pluralistic society where the highest virtue is tolerance, the way we would like to see this read is everyone has been born of God. That's not the way he puts it here. 
He says, you got to do something. And this do something is not works. It's not something that you might boast about, but it's faith in the one who's already accomplished it all. So it, it all hinges upon the one at the center. What I love about the end of a basketball game is that all eyes are locked upon the superstar who can only accomplish what he can accomplish. Like everybody else folds under pressure, but the superstar, the one at the center, is the one that all eyes are looked upon because when the pressure gets its tightest, he raises to the occasion. Jesus Christ did this when we were yet in sin, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were at our worst, he got to his best, right? Now, what's dope about this is that because of that, we no longer have to try to meet the requirements of the law. Because all of it, he says, hinges, our entire access to the Father hinges upon who we believe in. Now, what does this mean to actually believe that he is the Christ? Now, based on 1 John, this epistle, I'm just going to get it right from this epistle. What it means is three things. It first means that you must believe in his perfect divinity. Uh, in this time in, in Christmas, what tends to happen is that people reduce Jesus Christ down to this little baby who was well-behaved that grew up into a, a good adult who was well-behaved and taught some good morals. But we, what, what, what really happened when, when, when Jesus Christ came down to earth is what really happened is that at his dedication, at his birth, I just love the baby dedication that we just had. But at his birth, there was no dedication. There was worship, y'all. Before Jesus Christ did anything, people didn't come up and pray for him. They were praying to him. Jesus Christ, this baby wrapped in a manger, they didn't come to him to say, let me bless you. Let me see what I can pray upon you. They were coming to him to say, Lord, bless me. Man can't even talk yet. Can't even talk yet. And so intrinsic in his worth is his deity. And what does this mean? It means that you must worship him. It means that what he teaches you are not suggestions, but demands upon your soul. Okay, so then we also must believe in his perfect humanity. First John chapter four, starting at verse one, says, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every idea about the Lord Jesus, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. How do we know the spirit of God? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in what? The flesh is from God. So what was going on at the time is that people were saying that Jesus was a spirit. He didn't really come in the flesh. He wasn't really fully human. He acted like he was hungry. He acted like he was thirsty. I don't know how you act like you bleed, but he acted like he bled, right? Like, like he acted like this. And what they're really preaching is a hologram Jesus. Y'all seen the holograms of Tupac and Michael Jackson and people fill up stadiums to come to these shows where the guy's not even there, right? And they were preaching a hologram Jesus, but John says, nah, man, he he was right in the flesh. And if he is not fully human, then you are not fully atoned for your sins, okay? So, So we must believe in his full humanity, but last but not least, we must believe in his perfect atonement. There's beliefs going around that the atonement was just a second thought. Let me put it like this. His purpose, his purpose was to be the propitiation for problematic people. That, that's it. His purpose was to be the propitiation for problematic peoples. He came, his whole reason for coming was to pay for our sins. If that's not why he came, then you missed the whole point, bro. 
And so what does it look like to entrust ourselves in the Lord Jesus? It looks like believing in his perfect divinity, his perfect humanity, and his perfect work. And when we do that, John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. At this point in time, John's like 90 years old. He's been walking with Jesus since he was like 20, and he's still bugged out by the adoption. Still bugged out by the adoption. And what has happened in our society is men and women are getting not bugged out by the adoption, but bored with the adoption. Shouldn't bore us, though. It shouldn't bore us. John is still bugged out that our nasty, stanky, can't wipe our nose from our armpit selves have been adopted into the family of God Almighty. That in and of itself should have been enough for us to be bugged out for the rest of eternity. In and of itself. And so the first thing we must ask ourselves is, are you identified by unwavering faith? Second thing, are you identified by unwavering? Conditional love. Are you identified by unconditional love? This is what he says next. He says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, what I love about this is that this is just a really logical statement. Just think about it, okay? You are the abusive child. You're the abusive teenager who goes to school, bullies this one guy all day long to the point that he dies. This is exactly what your sin does to the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And then his father, who is richer than Bill Gates, says, I want you to be my son now. I want you to be my daughter now, okay? Now just Think for a second. Think for a moment. You're the one who through your sin has placed him on the cross. And now he says, I want you as mine. Not to spend the night. This isn't a foster care gospel. You're not spending just a few days here. He says, I want you eternally. You. Now, if that doesn't make you love everyone else who is adopted into the same family, nothing else will. Like, like how do you get beyond that? How, how, how do we as Christians some, somehow decide to be more spiritually aware than loving our neighbors? How do, you, how do you get more spiritually aware than loving your neighbor? And so what happens is when we are only identified as super spiritual along with being super selfish, what tends to happen is that we give a sad picture of the Savior. And, 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 and the reason why people, and I'm being real with y'all, yo, the reason why people don't want to hear the gospel a lot is because it has nothing to do with the message. It has a lot to do with what they've seen of Christians has a lot to do with what they've seen in Christians. Muhammad Gandhi, I'm going to tell you this real quick. Muhammad Gandhi, great leader in India, right? Great leader in India, actually prized as the founder of India, right? Claimed to be the founder of India. This is what he says. He says, I have a great respect for Christianity. I often read the Sermon on the Mount and have gained much from it. And this is what he says next. He says, I know of no one who has done more for humanity than Jesus. This is Mahatma Gandhi now. now. Now, he's a leader, right? He says, I know of no one who has done more for humanity than Jesus. But then here comes the bombshell. <laughs> he says, in fact, there is nothing wrong with Christianity, but the trouble is with you Christians. You do not begin to live up to your teachings. My, my, my prayer today is that this would not be Epiphany Fellowship, y'all in Philly. That this would not be Epiphany Fellowship in, in, in Philly. 
And so what does it look like in 2014 in Epiphany Fellowship to be ones who love unconditionally, that are marked by an unconditional love? This is what it looks like. First off, we should get our P's and Q's, our pattern of love after the Savior. Uh, there was a song by Eve, Love is Blind. Y'all remember that, John? It will take over your mind. What you think is love is truly not. You need to elevate and find. Come on, y'all. y'all know, I, I know I'm not the only one who knows that, John, right? That's, that's my jam right there. I, I, don't, I don't even mind admitting it, right? But what she says in there is something powerful. She says, it will take over your mind. What you think is love is truly not. Now, she don't know what she's talking about. But in reality, in reality, the, the real reality is, is that honestly, when we try to love outside of understanding what love looks like from the scriptures, we get in a lot of trouble, yo. We get, we, when we get our P's and Q's from culture, what it looks like to love someone else, we get in a lot of trouble. I, I would even encourage you, make a top 10 list of why you need to be abiding in Christ on a daily basis. I did it. And one of the top reasons on my list is that I don't know how to love my, life, my wife well when I'm not abiding in Christ. What I think is being loving might be just being nice. What I think is lo- being loving might just be being harsh. I don't know what it looks like unless I'm abiding in Christ. I'm, I'm just saying, let, let, let's take our P's and Q's from what the Savior says. And so 1 John chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 14, it says, This is love, that he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So what does love look like? It looks like service. Like we've gotten to this point where we have like all these love languages. Well, my love language is touch, so I don't really know how to serve people well. You know, every time they tell me to wipe clockwise, I always wipe counterclockwise. I can't quite get it, right? And we make up every type of excuse not to be servants to the brotherhood and servants to the family of God. And what he says is that love looks like service. One love language every believer must have is service. Everybody, everybody. One love language everybody must have is service. And, and what, what, what frustrates me a lot of times is when we make a call to service, too many times young men, the ladies are the ones who have their hands raised. Too many times the ladies are the ones who have their hands raised. And so you want to you talk about need now? We have needs. There, there's, a, there's a basketball league on Saturdays. <laughs> on Saturdays. Now, now we're going to get real practical, right? There's a basketball league on Saturdays where kids are wreaking havoc on this building that we come to every Sunday. Y'all don't see what people have had to clean up. Y'all don't see what Aaron and Tiff have had to go through because there's just not enough men to watch the door and keep security. And I'm not calling on Brother Basile again. <laughs> He's always here. We got enough young men here who could take up the charge. Easy, practical, love, love. Here's something real quick. You should be very worried, man, if you've been here for a while and you never get a a phone call at like 7 o'clock saying, can you come help out moving or something. You should be very worried that phone call never hits your phone. That when people see your name in the phone, they just scroll by because they know that you have constantly showed them that you'd rather make excuses than come and help. Be very very worried. All right. Let's keep it moving. So um, uh, are you identified by unwavering faith? Are you identified by unconditional love? And last but not least, uh, are you identified by uncompromised obedience? 
Are you identified by uncompromised obedience? This is what he says next. He says, by this we know love. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, normally we merge this idea of obedience and keeping, but I want to just separate them real quick for you just so you can get a picture of what each one looks like. Because obedience looks like doing something. Obedience has more of this idea that scares us. Because whenever we hear the word obedience, what we tend to think is some legalistic religiosity that says that if I don't do this, then I'm taken out of the familyhood of God. But once again, I want to say grace that is not given as a gift is no grace at all. So don't worry about this. That is grace driven obedience. This is this is the way first John puts it in chapter two. He says, I write to you so that you may not sin. Obedience. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Grace. Grace driven obedience. We got the, the best insurance policy in the world. Accident forgiveness to the T. Right? Right? But that doesn't mean that you drive around recklessly. Because it still causes injuries, right? And so, and so make sure that we're, we're, we're not driving around recklessly just because we got accident forgiveness, right? And so, so, so let's, let's also look at what it looks to keep his commandments, right? And so this idea of keeping his commandments looks like guarding the original intent of the commandment itself. So what it really means in, in our language is not compromising. Not compromising. Not giving sin wiggle room to creep in because here's the reality. Sin never bulldozes at your door with the bang. It always creeps in the back door with a compromise. Every time. It, it, there's no sin knocking at your door. Adultery, uh, here to see recap gray. Will you let me in? Doesn't work like that. Uh, we got a package, hatred and bitterness for recap. Would you sign for this? Don't work like that, bro. Don't work like that. Don't work like that, yo. Don't work like that. It always creeps in. And so we, we must be uncompromised in our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's move on and look at what victory looks like as a whole. It looks like one who is identified by unwavering faith, unconditional love, and uncompromised obedience. But in 2014, I'm going to tell you that a lot of Christians are walking in defeat. And so I want to put, lay this out here before I encourage you with the victory that we have in Christ. I want to lay out for you what it looks like to walk a defeated Christian life. And in this Christmas season, let me start with this one. This one. Number one, when possessions possess you. Because this victory is not just, once again, I keep reiterating this, this is not just for when he comes back. We have victory over this world now. Says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You know, when you're truly believing that Jesus is the Son of God, when your possessions don't possess you. When, 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 when you would rather sacrifice a good opportunity for the gospel, or an opportunity to, 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 to come to a brother or sister in need because your TV says you got to make it back home by 8 o'clock, otherwise you're going to miss Scandal or the Eagles game. Now, I'm preaching to me right now, bro. Y'all know I love the Sixers. I'm preaching to me right now, right? Would I, would I rather go home and catch the Sixers game 
or, 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 or take a good opportunity to share the gospel with somebody on SEPTA. Like real, like real practical ideas. When Facebook says that you got to post something every four hours, otherwise you're lost in irrelevancy to the whole nation. Right? Right? And so when you're at home, you're not really at home. When you're with the spouse, you're not really with your spouse. Like, like what does it look like to be defeated? This next thing, when pleasures, sinful or not, consistently compromise self-control. When pleasures, sinful or not, consistently compromise self-control. I, 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 when, when a lady says, I have to give in to her, his demands or he'll leave me. When, when, oh, hear, hear this. When, 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 a, when a person says that I'm not going to date anyone unless they're in love with Jesus. Then a week later, they say, I'm not going to date anybody unless they go to church every Sunday. <laughs> and, then, and then four months later, catch them again. I'm not dating anyone unless they say they are Christian. <laughs> and then you kind of six months later, they say, well, I just need a spiritual person. Yeah. <laughs> and by the time two years is gone, they still sing. And it's just like, I just need somebody good, doc. <laughs> just good. Just a good person. What is a good? Anyway, anyway. Like consistently compromising self-control. Yeah. I'll leave this one alone. I'll drink just one, pass right by it. Don't even worry about that one. There ain't none of, none of y'all here. But what about this one, brothers? I'm only going to turn the television off. I'm going to turn the television off immediately if a girl is in her bathing suit. Then a week later, you say, nah, I must, that, that's too legalistic. Don't want to go that far. I'm going to switch the channel when she's in a bra and panties. Then, then, no, I don't want to go that far. See, that's too legalistic. Maybe when there's nudity, that's when I'm shutting the channel off. And then a month later, it's like, well, they're not having sex on screen, so maybe I'm okay. And you find yourself in the same addiction that you were trying to get yourself out of when you set it up the boundaries in the first place. I'm encouraging you, fellas, you have victory over this world. There's self-control that comes through the Holy Spirit and the graces of the people of God that says you can defeat that thing. So are, are we consistently compromising self-control? Next one, pain paralysis. And this is a difficult one because when you're in the difficulty of suffering, when you're in the difficulty of pain, can nobody tell you nothing about anything? When, when my daughter's sick or, or I lost a loved one, I can't go to church anymore, bro, because I just don't feel like they'll understand me. They'll get me. And, and what usually happens with pain paralysis is that people confuse a worldly idea with a gospel idea. Here he says we have overcome the world. What people start to think when they're in pain paralysis is that I need to get over it. And those are two very different things. Because what Christ calls us to do is bear arms and not get over it, but go straight through that thing. In the midst of the worst suffering, in the midst of the worst pain, because Christ went straight through the wrath of God, not over it, around it, or, or, or somehow kind of turned the other cheek to what you have done, your sin. He said, I got to look dead at it and deal with it on the cross. And so because of that, we have a way of dealing with pain. It doesn't look like indulging in pleasures when we're hurting. And it definitely doesn't look like removing ourselves from the grace of the church that God has given us. This last one, and then I'm out of your way. And then we're going to encourage you guys. What defeat looks like a lot of times in the Christian church is something I call sin-stained syndrome. 
Now, bear with me. When you get a stain on your shirt, the first thing that normally happens is that you're embarrassed. It doesn't feel good to have a, a big mustard stain on your shirt or a big ketchup stain on your, on your nice shirt, on your nice suit. And so what tends to happen is that people will kind of go into a closet once they sinned until that stain kind of fades out. Now, the stain is still there because it hasn't been washed out. But you just want it, want it to fade enough so that you're not as embarrassed when you go in public anymore. So this is when brothers looked at something that they shouldn't have looked at on Saturday and they say, I can't make it to church on Sunday, bro. They're going to notice the stain. They're going to notice it. And so what I'll do is I'll wait until two weeks until I come back into the gathering or two weeks until I go back to life group. And so when they ask me, how's my purity going? I can say it's going real well. Right. I'm going to feel a little bit better about myself two weeks later because I've kind of removed myself from the body. But the reality is there's a grace for you. Or how about, how, how about, how about men and women who are arguing in their marriage and, and the people, they, 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 realize, they think that people are going to judge them because of it. So they say, man, if I go to church, my super Christian identity is going to be revoked. I can't tell nobody about this. And so what needs to happen once we have hit the sin, the stain of sin, is that instead of just trying to let it fade out to black, what needs to happen is we need to go to a laundromat called His Grace. Okay? And, and what we need to go is when we go in there, we need to go to the washer machine of mercy. And, and sometimes when, when you're receiving mercy from the Lord Jesus, you got to put something in there, though. you got to put something in there. So you got to pull out the coin of confession, drop that thing in there, and then you mix it in with a detergent called repentance. And you mix that thing in, and then the whole washing machine starts going, and it starts moving. And the blood of Jesus begins to cleanse you from all your sin and stain, but you're not done yet. Then you got to go to the dryer of forgiveness so you can come out of that thing brand spanking new. And then the tag team of obedience and repentance come back in the game. Y'all ever seen a tag team match? What happens is obedience comes in and then they, he goes down, he struggles, he falls, he tags in repentance, repentance comes in, tags back in obedience. And at some point in time, back in the day when you watch WWF Raw, both are in and you don't know which one you're going to watch. <laughs> right? Right? And so that's what the Christian life should look like, a tag team of obedience and repentance. Don't wait for a second to jump on either one. Don't give wiggle room to Satan. He will, he will use that thing to defeat you. But in Christ, the victory has been won even now. Even now. Even now. And so what does the, the victorious Christian life look like? It doesn't look like a whole bunch of bread. Don't, don't look like what the world wants it to look like. It looks like a man or woman of God who has unwavering faith. Paul says, one that is not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Unwavering faith, unconditional love, that even when I'm in pain, I'm still going to love the body. And it looks like uncompromised obedience. I'm not giving any type of wiggle room to Satan. I'm calling my brother as soon as I even had a thought. Whatever it takes, bruh. Whatever it takes, bruh. What are we in this for? Whatever it takes, he calls us to die to ourselves. Yeah. We have the victory in him when we're walking in these identities. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ who has already won the victory for us.
in his life, death, and resurrection. We have victory, not later, but now. So I just pray um, that every man and woman under my voice would um, understand that because of what he has done, we have victory over the worst strongholds in the world. But the world can't touch us. The world cannot touch us. If we keep our eyes pierced not on our own defeats, but on the one who is victorious, I pray that each man and woman here will keep his eyes and her eyes pierced on the Savior so that they truly might find satisfaction in the midst of this dying world. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.